following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you have your Bibles this afternoon, please open to Psalm 22. I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them as we work through today's Lord's Supper meditation. I believe seeing the words as well as hearing them will help us as the Holy Spirit helps us learn from His Word. As I mentioned in our call to worship, Psalm 22 has appropriately been called the Psalm of the Cross. The original author of this psalm, King David, was also a prophet. God gave him this vision about a thousand years before Christ was born. At the time David wrote the psalm, historians tell us crucifixion had not even been invented which makes verse 16b jump off the page. They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion for capital punishment was not used by the Roman Empire until the time of Christ. It was not used, but it was used by the Roman Empire by the time of Christ. In this Psalm of David, we see David's afflictions only as a secondary matter. Indeed, Psalm 22 is first and foremost a description of the darkness and the glory of the cross. Psalm 22 foretells and describes the suffering of Christ and the glory to follow. The psalm can be divided into two sections. Part 1, verses 1 to 21, as I mentioned, a pitiful cry for help. And then part 2, verses 22 to 31, a most precious foretaste of deliverance. I want to take us on a brisk walk through this psalm, highlighting certain portions of God's infallible word while making applications as we move along. And I hope this will help us prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper. In Psalm 22, we see the heart of Jesus drawn out by the agony of his body and soul during the crucifixion. His soul was under immeasurable intensity from God's holy wrath, poured out upon him as he hung dying on the cross. On the cross, Jesus' heart is in anguish, in prayer, and also in faith. This psalm also reveals the loving heart of God the Father implicitly. When Jesus prayed, asking his Father the question, Why are you so far from helping me? No answer was given to Jesus, his only begotten Son. And Jesus knew why. But in anguish he pleaded, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me and from the words of my groaning? It was the Father's holiness and justice and his love for sinful, lost, hellbound people that kept him silent in the face of Jesus' cry for help. Every true Christian is why the Father forsook his own Son. For if he had interrupted Christ on the cross, then all mankind would be under God's wrath forever and ever. So first we're going to consider verses 1 through through 21, a pitiful cry for help. Look at verse 1. It reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? The suffering of Jesus in his body and soul was so great And under such awful agony and grief that he cries out to his father, My God, my God, why? 
Why, at such a time as this, when I'm in the greatest need, why now am I forsaken by you? Why have you forsaken me? How sad and yet how instructive is the word why? What is the cause of this peculiar reality? For God to leave his own son and in such difficulty hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying. Why have you forsaken me, your innocent and obedient son? Why are you so far from helping me? Why do you leave me to perish? Jesus knew why. But in his human nature, as his body and soul thrashed in pain, he cried out, sensing in his heart his father's abandonment. The forsaking of his father caused him to groan in a most pitiful prayer to his father. Our sins caused this cry of dereliction. Jesus prayed earnestly and righteously and honestly to God his father, why have you forsaken me? And even with Jesus' earnest prayer, in the face of these loud groanings of prayer, why, why, the Father still forsook him. It was because Jesus alone is and was the only one who could pay our debt in full, the debt that our sins require. His obedient suffering under the fury of God's holy wrath has set us free and liberated us from the bondage and guilt and penalty of our sins. Jesus was forsaken because our sins had separated us from God. Why was Jesus forsaken? Because God's loving heart desired to save helpless sinners from eternal punishment. God steps in to reverse the curse and to reconcile a people back to himself. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. Here, Jesus does not give up praying, despite his prayers not being answered promptly. What a great example Jesus is of importunate prayer, of persistent prayer, and unrelenting prayer in his time of distress and agony. What a great example he is to us are any of you struggling and wrestling with a trial some trouble perhaps a besetting sin is harassing you day after day follow your lord here and ask the father to help you in the power of the holy spirit pray even when no answer seems to be coming your way pray and trust god is faithful when our prayers appear to be unanswered by god we, like Jesus, must believe and trust and keep our faith and hold on, crying out to the Father, O oh my God, in the daytime and in the nighttime, O oh my God, keep on praying and do not keep silent before the Father. Verse 3, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. No matter how difficult our trials get, no matter how things may look from our present point of view, there is nothing cruel and nothing unfriendly and nothing unkind in our God. He remains holy. He's enthroned and he works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's as if Jesus is saying, let the Father do as he wills. He's holy and on his throne. We're to praise him. God is faithful. Indeed, prayer and praise are like two wings of a bird that lift us up from earthly sorrow 
helping us to draw nearer to God. Verse 4, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. Here, our Lord Jesus pleads with God his Father, reminding God of his covenant faithfulness to his people in the past. Our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you, O God, delivered them. Jesus is showing solidarity with his people using the term, our fathers trusted. Even on the cross, Jesus is a man of prayer. And notice the last three words of this verse, four. You delivered them. We see that God loves when we trust him. And when we have believing prayers and hearts full of faith and hearts that trust God, then we find deliverance. But no, no one ever trusted like Jesus. Jesus believed every word of God. He trusted God with his whole heart. And yet, he was not spared. He was not delivered. God gave Christ what we deserve the punishment of our sins. And God gave to us what we could never earn, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse five, they cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. As Jesus continues his prayer, we see a wonderful lesson. When in great times of distress and trial, ancient believers did two things in the dark and trying times. They cried out to God in prayer, and they trusted God. On the cross, Jesus cried out to and trusts his Father. But he is nonetheless put to shame as his Father turned away from him. Unlike the ancient believers under God's covenant love who were delivered and not ashamed, Jesus was forsaken by the Father, yet only temporarily. Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Here we see the greatest of all becomes the weakest of all. Notice, but I am a worm. And look at the second and third word in verse 6, if you have your Bibles open. The second and third word in verse 6 is, I am. The great I am has now become the I am a worm. Jesus felt himself as comparable to a helpless, powerless, slithering worm while hanging and dying on the cross. He was crushed. He was helpless in his human nature. He was despised and trampled on like a worm. He placed himself willingly below the angels, indeed below mankind. And then he cries out, but I am a worm. This is astonishing. What an abundantly clear expression of the Father and the Son's infinite, amazing love for you and I here is given on the cross. What depth of love for you moved the great I am to stoop so low to have to say, but I am a worm. Notice next verses seven and eight together. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Here we see our Lord on the cross enduring cruel mocking. Can you see in your mind's eye the wicked, cruel lookers on? The Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, the common people all taking sordid pleasure, looking at Jesus 
as he's being crucified and dying. They shake their heads as they mock and they shoot out cruel words. He trusted in the Lord. Let him, that is God, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. Since he, Jesus, delights in him, what irony resides in this one verse? The mockers speak truth. They say that Jesus trusted in his Father, and they're correct. But they're still complicit in his arrest and his crucifixion. And even more irony is at the end of the verse. The Father did delight in Jesus, his dear Son. Think of that for a moment, that even while the Father poured out his wrath on his only Son, he also delighted in him at the same time. Jehovah delights in him and yet bruises him. He is well pleased with him and yet slays him to death. What an unspeakable love the Father and the Son have lavished upon us. Such sinners as we are have been given such a gospel, such good news. Praise his merciful name. Praise his holy name. Verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. What a blessed journey. What a kind providence. What a marvelous story. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the sinless Savior, was born to a humble family. The Son of God, born the Son of Man. The Savior of the world was a baby, protected from Herod's murderous schemes. And as he grew, he learned, being perfected by the things that he suffered, until he was brought to full maturity. So much so that through his entire life as a child onto a grown man, he perfectly obeyed the law of God in thought, word, and deed. Only to be crucified and to suffer under the wrath of his Holy Father as our substitute in our place. A most pure, holy, and innocent Lamb of God, taken and slayed by sinners for sinners, according to the eternal plan of God the Father. Verse 10, I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jesus expresses God's goodness to him, that all the days of his earthly pilgrimage have had God as his God. He prays, you have been my God. He was fully human and yet fully God, the only Savior of sinners. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Spurgeon calls us to notice the two fours in this verse. In verse 11, for trouble is near, and for there is none to help, Spurgeon writes. As though faith gave a double knock at mercy's gate. That is a powerful prayer which is full of holy reasons and thoughtful arguments. The, nearest, the nearness of trouble is a weighty motive for divine help. This moves our Heavenly Father's heart and brings down His helping hand. Spurgeon goes on to say, In our Lord's case, none either could or would help Him. It was needful that He should tread the winepress alone. There is an awfulness about absolute friendlessness, which is crushing to the human mind. For man was not made to be alone and is like a dismembered limb when he has to endure heart loneliness. Verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. This verse sets the scene surrounding our Savior 
as Jesus hung naked on the cross, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rulers encircle him. They were as wild bulls. Brutal and wicked, they stand strong before the Lord of glory. This verse adds great weight to Jesus' prayer to the Father when he cried out, be not far from me, as he's encircled by these murderous religious leaders. Verse 13, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Wicked men roared at our precious Savior as if they were lions tearing apart their prey in the open field. Full of anger, they raged against the suffering servant. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Here Jesus switches from his enemies to describing his own personal condition. He is exhausted in a frightful, appalling condition. His body is spent and his energy is gone, poured out like water. When the cross was first set in place, and along with the protracted time hanging on the cross, his bones became out of joint. His heart was like wax. It melted within me, says Jesus. The work given to Jesus Christ to bear our sins as our substitute was horrific. The holiness of God required justice upon our sins. And the love of God and of Christ provided a sacrifice. Our precious Lord Jesus, whose heart melted within him under the justice of his Father. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. On this verse, Spurgeon says, all his strength was dried up in the tremendous flames of avenging justice, even as the paschal lamb was roasted in the fire. My tongue clings to my jaws. Thirst and fever fastened his tongue to his jaws. Dryness and a horrible clamminess tormented his mouth so that he could scarcely speak. Beloved, our triune God loves us with a love that is beyond measure. What a tremendous love to have suffered for us in this way, body and soul. He was suffering at the hands of sinful men and at the hands of his holy Father. Praise God for his redeeming love. Love so amazing we cannot adequately describe it. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This entire psalm is a plea, a cry, a prayer by the Lord Jesus for divine help. And here we see Jesus persevering in prayer. First the bulls and now the dogs. The dogs represent the crowd of common bystanders along with the soldiers. They were not the leaders, but they fell in line behind the leaders. The bulls were first in rank before our suffering servant, while the dogs right behind those bulls barked out their own mocking and ridicule. The ravenous animals surrounded the Savior of the world, and it was then that they pierced his hands and feet. The Roman soldiers crucified our Lord of glory. This particular scriptural verse cannot be referring to King David at all. Only Jesus of Nazareth can be described here in verse 16b. Indeed, with nails they pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. 
Here Spurgeon also noted, the zeal of his father's house has eaten him up. Like a good soldier, he had endured hardness. While he suffered intense agony, even to the bones, his killers look on him without any pity or any care. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Along with verse 16b, here also verse 18 seals the deal that indeed David's vision is of the day of Christ when the man of Nazareth was crucified. David's prophecy pinpoints each detail that took place when Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation. The custom was that soldiers who did the work of crucifixion took the spoils, the clothing of the executed criminal. But in this case, they cast lots. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, we read this. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. And also the tunic, which was a shirt or a robe. Now the tunic was, a, was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture referenced is Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Here again, we see our Savior and our Lord Jesus persevering in prayer. Jesus desires nothing but his God. In his low state and condition, he cries out all the more, do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, act quickly to help me. Jesus needs urgent care, so he calls out to his Father to act quickly. This is a righteous prayer, a prayer that we can all copy when we're in times of urgent need. Notice also here in verse 19 that in our weakness, God is our strength. Oh, my strength, Jesus prays. Verse 20, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Now, scholars believe the term dog here refers to Satan, and the sword refers to death. Indeed, death came into the world because of sin, and sin came by way of Satan's tempting and deceptive lies. In the original, the Hebrew, my precious life, can also read as my one and only soul. So we might say this, deliver my one and only soul from death, from the power of Satan. That was Jesus' cry to his heavenly Father. Deliver my one and only soul from death, from the power of Satan. May God grant us all the same care and concern for our own souls and for the souls of all those that we interact with. <clears throat> and now verse 21, the last verse in this pitiful cry for help. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. This is Jesus' last cry for rescue from death in Psalm 22. Death, that mighty lion has Jesus in his mouth, and even then, Jesus prays on. We know this prayer was heard and answered, for ultimately, Jesus wins the victory, as we know God raised him from the dead after three days. 
Now with the few moments we have left, I want us to consider a few bits of the second part of this song. Verse 22 marks a clear transition from Jesus' prayer for help in the face of the Father's furious wrath poured out upon him as he hung on the cross. A transition to the soul of our Redeemer beholding and seeing and observing the light. The light of his triumph and its future results. Here we see our Savior smiling. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. This is what Jesus is contemplating even on the cross. The term brethren stands out in this verse. Jesus delights in his body, the church. Consider Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. After Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll remember Mary Magdalene and the other Mary which scholars believe might have been his mother or his aunt, came to the tomb. And there they met an angel that told them, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's raised. And he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and indeed he's gone. He's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went the two Marys out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brethren to go to Galilee And there they will see me. Jesus loves his people, for we are his brethren, his brothers and sisters, who he gave his life for. He presently prays for and cares for us at the right hand of his Father, for us, his brethren. Verse 23 You who fear God, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. This might seem odd that there's three imperatives here as Christ is contemplating his victory upon the cross. Here we see Jesus Christ calling us to give glory to God who has conquered death and brought new life to our hell-bound souls. We have three imperatives given to the redeemed of the cross. Praise him, glorify him, and fear him. What an appropriate response to such a Savior who willingly suffers and dies in our place, and to the Father who sent him. Praise him, glorify him, and fear him. If you ever get bored during the week, you're done with your video games, this is what we should be doing as the people of God, praising him, glorifying him, fearing him, in the home, in the church, in the community, at work. We're to be praising him, glorifying him, and fearing him. Verse 24, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Here we see God the Father's answer to the why question in verse 1 that Jesus gave. God the Father always loved the Son. His hiding from him was only temporary. 
His forsaking Christ was not final or eternal. When his son Jesus cried out to him, the father did hear and did answer, we too must keep the faith in the face of our unanswered prayers. Our prayers are always answered, always, though they may seem to us to be unanswered. Like Christ, we must persevere in prayer, trusting our gracious Heavenly Father, who only hides temporarily. We must trust His sure and certain word, for indeed, He is working out all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to to his purpose. And we're about to close here. Verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Spurgeon remarks here that true praise is of celestial origin. Jesus here shows us what we ought to be doing. Our praise is to be of God and of God alone. We should find it our greatest joy to pay our vows to God in the midst of the assembled church. What could be greater? What could be greater on earth than to be together with God's people and to praise Him? Verse 26, the poor, or some translations say, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Here we see that Jesus comforts himself by looking at the results of his death. What a joy it was for Jesus to think upon his purchased possession, the church, you and I. Even while enduring agony of the cross, he reminded himself, sinners will be saved by this cross work. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Indeed, we praise the Lord and our souls live forever. And then verse 27 will be the last verse that we look at. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Here we see the Messiah's missionary spirit. Oh, may this verse nerve our own spirits as we give our money, give our prayers, give our time, give our energy to fulfilling the Great Commission. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now in closing, I want to just read the four remaining verses, because they dovetail so nicely with this point on the Great Commission. So follow as I read verses 28 to 31. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And remember, this is Jesus' contemplation on the cross. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. 
that he has done this. So there we have the psalm of the cross. First, Jesus' pitiful cry for help. Second, the most precious foretaste of deliverance. And before I close, and we, and we sing a hymn together, I want to just make two brief applications. First, to those of you that are converted, I just want to remind you the call to believers that Jesus gave us in this psalm. Praise him. Glorify him. Fear him in all your life, in your home, at work, at church, and in the community. That's our battle cry. Praise him. Glorify him. And fear him. And then those of you that are unconverted, for you to sit and hear what Christ did for his people. He paid the punishment that they deserve. And that Savior can be your Savior if you would but trust in him, repent of your sins and trust in him and leave your sins behind and come to Christ. He is gentle and lowly and he will receive you. But if you reject him and stiff arm him, then everything that we read today and everything you heard today about what he suffered, you will suffer it, but not temporarily and not momentarily. For all eternity, you'll have those agonies that we heard of tonight. So I beg you to please come to Christ. There's nothing in this world that can compare to the salvation that he gives. Please come to Christ for your own soul's sake. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.